Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And Father, we ask for the help, for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit to just prepare us to have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to your church this morning. Lord, you know where we're at and what's going on in our lives And we trust that these spirit-inspired scriptures that you gave to us so many years ago are alive and powerful for this present day. So, Lord, help us to understand doctrinally, but help us to also receive just personally the application to what you would say to us and the intent you have for our hearts and lives this morning. Lord, please prepare us, bless your word that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking directly to our hearts. Speak to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name together. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what happens not if, but when we fail? I think that certainly is something to consider because it's not a matter of if. For all of us, it's always just a matter of when. We're going to fail in our lives. And the question becomes, does God cast us away? Uh, Does God just sort of refuse us forever? Well, today's passage addresses that spiritual reality. And it proves, Romans chapter 11, this part of it, that God works through failure and that God can even still renew his work even after failure. This passage certainly drives home that point. If you remember back in Romans 8, Paul made that beautiful declaration where he said, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, question, that's great for the Christian, but many began to wonder, well, what about, however, the nation of Israel? What about the Jews? Having rejected Jesus Christ, certainly we know historically there was a tremendous national rejection of Jesus Christ when he came to the Jewish people as God's Savior. And the question became, has that caused God then to cast them aside as a people? Has that caused God, that failure, to be finished with them as his chosen people? Well, that's what led Paul, as we said, to then pen Romans 9, 10, and 11 and to discuss the things that he has been. Romans 9, we saw dealt with Israel's past election by God, that God chose them and elected them as his people initially. Romans 10 emphasized Israel's present rejection, that is how they rejected Jesus when he came as their Messiah. And Romans 11 now deals with Israel's future restoration. And the fact that though they did reject God as his chosen people, that God is not done with them and that God graciously has a plan to still restore them as a people and as a nation. Now, chapter 10 spoke to us and described how Israel had rejected Jesus as God's savior when he was sent to them and that the gospel therefore went to the Gentiles. That at that point, Israel rejected nationally Jesus Christ as their savior, that God then opened wide the door of faith and salvation to the Gentile nations, to all other peoples. So Paul now next addresses concerns 
that would be attached to that. As the gospel went to the Gentiles and they were widely embracing it and numbers of Gentiles were getting saved very quickly, that would cause certain questions and concerns to come to the mind of both Jews and Gentiles alike regarding what that meant. And that's what Paul continues to address here as we begin the 11th chapter, where if you look back with me in verse 1, Paul says, I say then question because everyone was wondering it has God then cast away his people Paul says certainly not for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin so Paul begins with this predominant point as I said of this 11th chapter which is God's response to and God's relationship now to the nation of Israel as his original chosen people. The idea he brings up here, he says, question, because everyone was wondering, has God indeed cast away his people? The idea there of cast away means has God done away with them permanently? Has God altogether just set them aside? Is God now finished with the nation of Israel? Is God completed with his work among the Jewish people? Have all his promises to them, all his offers to them, his covenants with them? Has God retracted them now? Has he pulled them back because of their rejection? Has all that been discontinued and that program shut down as a response to their national rejection of Jesus, God's Savior? Paul's answer to that, verse 11, uh, chapter 1 of verse 11, certainly not. His answer to that, absolutely not. God has not cast them away. God has not done with them permanently. God has not retracted his promises from them nationally as a people. And Paul then begins to give some proofs to validate that. One proof he gives in verse 1 here is that Paul himself as a Jew had experienced salvation himself through Jesus Christ. He says, certainly God hasn't cast them away. In fact, one of the reasons I know that, he says, is I'm an Israelite. I'm an Israelite myself of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm a Christian, now Paul would say. So one of the greatest proofs that God has not done with them, Paul says, is my own life is living testimony of that as a Jew on the other side of the national rejection of the Jews themselves. Though there was national rejection, yes, individual Jews, Paul's trying to say, were still being saved on occasion. Paul himself was the greatest example, and let us not forget who Paul was as a Jew. Paul was the poster child, was he not? The book of Acts, the poster child for one of the most stubborn, resistant Jewish people against Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation. And yet, nonetheless, God didn't cast Paul aside despite his stubborn, stubborn persistence of rejecting Jesus time after time. What did God do? He did the opposite. He powerfully saved Paul. The poster child for the most strongest holdout that I'm not going to accept Jesus. I'm not going to turn to the Lord. God said, you know what, boy, I, those stubborn cases, they're the best ones to save. And just to validate, no matter how stubborn somebody can be, they can't outlast me in my loving persistence. God saved Paul. And the reality is this. God delights, gang, to sometimes save the toughest cases for his glory and good purposes. To demonstrate who he is and to prove the power of his love and his grace in people's lives. Listen to what Paul said of that in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 to 16. Paul says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, 
a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I'm the chief. However, listen to what he says, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So what did Paul realize? He said, here's what I realized is God sort of picked me so I could be his trophy of grace. And God, in a sense, has published my life to say, look, you think I can't save somebody? Look at this guy. Nobody would have believed Paul the Apostle would have gotten saved. Nobody would have believed that stubborn stronghold out would be powerfully transformed and used by Jesus and not just saved, but then used to be one of the strongest vessels for Christianity in the early church. So God says, yeah, that's who I'm going to save and I'm just going to hold him out as a trophy of grace, as a pattern for other people to see that no one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's ability to save no matter what they're doing or what's going on. And Paul says, as a Jew I'm living testimony God's not done with the Jews he then says verse 2 God has not he now makes it a declaration after the question God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew now you can't get a clearer and more direct declaration I don't think regarding God's stand on Israel as a nation proving that God still has a plan for them then to look at what the Bible says there, it's clear as day in verse 2, God has not cast away his people Israel whom he foreknew. That is about the clearest description validating God still has a purpose for them nationally. God still has a plan to work among them as his chosen people. I mean, you, we should read it again and let it sink deep down into our heart and drive home the point to the person who may claim to be a Christian and has an anti-Semitic spirit, the Bible would say, listen, God has not cast away his people and nor should you. To the person who believes or espouses replacement theology, which says that God is done with the Jews and done with Israel and the church has now replaced them and absorbed all their promises and covenants instead to the person who would espouse replacement theology, which is error biblically, God would say, you know what? I have trouble with that because God has not cast away his people. He hasn't cast away his people. He still has a plan and a purpose for them. He then goes on verse two to say, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul now turns to scripture, as he often does, to validate his theology and his doctrinal beliefs. So to validate his stand on Israel, he turns to 1 Kings chapter 18 there where God is, is wrestling with Elijah and Elijah we see there is pleading with the Lord regarding the nation of Israel, his own people as a Jew and Elijah was what? Very concerned. He was very concerned and somewhat questioning God's plan because what seemed from his perspective to look like a loss of ground. 
that God's plan had sort of began to struggle and it seemed that the whole nation in Elijah's day had turned away from God and that nobody in Israel was interested in God anymore. It appeared God's work was failing, that outward numbers of committed servants weren't increasing, they were decreasing. They were losing numbers among their ranks of committed servants to serve Jehovah God and it looked like God in fact was down to his last one. To his last prophet, Elijah began to say, Lord, they've killed all your other prophets. They're torn down all the altars and, and I'm the only one left and, and now they're trying to kill me. Lord, I'm the last prophet that's left and they're trying to take my life and if you haven't noticed, after me, you're going to be a non-profit organization. I know that was poor. It took me all week to come up with that too. <laughs> but from Elijah's perspective... It looked really, really dark. It looked really depressing. And it looked like the plan of God and the work of God among Israel was about over. It looked like the show was ready to be shut down. It looked like they should pack up the ministry, the work of God, what God was doing. And it seemed that God's work among his people had failed. That it was done, that the program was over. And that greatly concerned and discouraged Elijah as a servant of the Lord. And it appeared, here's what it appeared, that Israel man's rejection had ruined God's plan. That because they had rejected God, that had ruined what God was trying to do among them. And God responds to Elijah in response, verse 4, and says to Elijah, Elijah, wait a minute, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God says to Elijah, listen, Elijah, you think that you're the last faithful servant and I know it looks that numbers are decreasing and it seems everything is failing and people are turning away quicker than they're turning towards me and, and that things are going backwards rather than forward. But despite what's happening among man and what you're observing visually, Elijah, I'm in full control. In fact, Elijah, I have a plan, an active operation still and he says, I've graciously chosen and called and set aside 7,000 faithful servants unto me who were committed among Israel. And God's saying, Elijah, the numbers aren't limiting me. They may be limiting you, but they're not limiting me. I'm still at work. I'm still reaching people and working in ways that you're just not aware of at this time, despite how it seems. Verse 5, he says, even so, in relation to that as an example... Paul says at this present time, verse 5, there is a remnant, which is a word that means a small number, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So just as during the rejection of Elijah's day, God's program was not ruined, God did not set aside the whole nation once for all, but he was still working among a small remnant. His plan had not failed. Paul says, even so then, verse 5, at this present time, historically, in Paul's day, in our day today, he says at this present time, despite the national rejection of the Jewish people of Jesus, he says, nonetheless, God still does have a remnant, a small number of Jews 
who are still following Jesus and who will be saved and embrace him. He calls them here, those Jews, a remnant according to the election of God's grace. Though most of the nation has turned and rejected Jesus Christ, there was, there is, and there will still be always a small remnant of Jews who will believe upon Jesus Christ, who God has elected by his grace to be saved and experience salvation. Now, as Paul speaks about these things, I can't help but to think what great spiritual lessons are learned there for all of us in regards to even the examples that Paul gives there. For example, in relation to the situation with Elijah, what a great reminder that despite what we see, despite what we perceive at times in current circumstances, it may not really be the way that we perceive things. It may not really be that what we see happening is really what's happening. And sometimes our perception is very strongly believed, but it's completely incorrect. That was the case with Elijah, and he was a man in touch with God. This was a godly man, and his perception was off. And sometimes we see things, we observe outward circumstances, that's what Elijah did. We can see what's happening, we can watch what's going on. He had lots of evidence with what he could see. But the reality was, despite what he was observing in his current circumstances, that really wasn't what was going on accurately. And God had to address that. See, today in your life, what's happening and how it looks sometimes may cause you to get really, really discouraged it may cause you to begin to get fearful because of what you're seeing it may cause you to feel somewhat doubtful because of what's happening in your circumstances but can i remind you never forget god is always at work and god always remains faithful and god is doing things that supersede human failure and mistakes and what's happening circumstantially and god's often doing things that you and i are not even aware of and God is working in ways that you and I don't even know about yet. He's doing things that you don't see and we wouldn't even understand. But don't think just because of what you perceive is automatically the reality of what's taking place because that's not always the case. God is at work. God is at work in your situation. Don't let the fear and the doubt and the discouragement overwhelm. But trust God, I don't see it, but I know you're faithful. And I know you're at work. And I know somehow you are working in ways I'm not even aware of right now. And you're going to bring this together for your purpose and for your plan. I think a second lesson we can glean from this is this, is that the failures of man to embrace God's plan and purpose and even human resistance fighting against God's purposes at times. Those things, though they are wrong, they don't ruin God's plan. You're not going to foil God's purpose. Listen, I fail all the time. People around me fail all the time. They make wrong decisions. They take the wrong exit ramp. They, you know, at times resist what God's doing and fight against it in doubt or fear or, or you know, just sinful humanity. But just because we fail and we may think it's all over now. That's it. I took the wrong exit ramp. It's all over. I've ruined everything, foiled it all, made a mistake. I'm too far gone. I've run out of the last measure of God's grace. There's no more grace left in God's pump. Listen, listen. Let us remember God is never limited. God's never limited. You know, I just read in my devotions this morning from the book of James where God says there, but he gives more grace. I love that. Oh, I've exhausted so much of God's grace. That's okay. He's got a little more grace to give. 
God gives more grace because he's the God of all grace. God's never limited. Nothing's beyond his ability. And the work of God among Israel nationally and people personally, it's all about grace. That's the wonderful thing. And Israel pictures that better than anyone. Verse 6, he goes on to say, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, Paul's just trying to say there, it's somewhat wordy. Things are happening either by works or by grace, but they're mutually exclusive. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. If something is truly happening by the grace of God, then there are no works that really contribute to it in any way. It's a work of God's grace. But if things are only happening because of works, then that excludes saying that it's happening by the grace of God. And Paul's life was a demonstration of that. He was an unexpected, seemingly impossible salvation. So how did it happen? By grace. In Elijah's day, it was not dependent upon Elijah and his works to bring about the plan and, and purposes of God. God just overruled despite all the failure and resistance of man and God still in his grace overruled and accomplished his purposes. Thank goodness for God's grace and how it overrules human failure. How many times we've all benefited from that. Look with me as he goes on, verse 7. He says, what then? What does all this mean? Has, or Israel, excuse me, has not obtained what it seeks, but, he says, the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, Paul begins to develop here what his understanding, which is accurate doctrine for us, as God's Spirit was directing Paul, explains regarding the current condition of the nation of Israel as a people. Israel as a nation had not obtained, he says here, what they were seeking, which was right relationship with God overall. Why? Because we've talked about because they clung to their law and therefore they rejected Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they brought themselves to where they're at now, which Romans 11 describes. He says, however, the elect, verse 11, he says, they have obtained. Obtained what? Obtained right relationship with God. They've obtained salvation. An elect remnant by grace, a small number, are still set apart to be saved. There were people saved in the days of Jesus. There were people saved in the early church. And there are Jews, which is what I'm referring to, that are being saved today still. However, verse 7 tells us, the remainder of the Jewish nation as a people, the Bible says now, judicially, the rest, nationally, are somewhat blinded by God. Though they are God's chosen people, that will not change. Though they were given much spiritual privilege, to whom much is given, much is required. And God holds to a greater standard. And therefore, because they rejected Jesus, despite all the spiritual privilege, the result and consequence of that rejection of what God was doing, you could say the Bible's teaching us the Jews have somewhat lost opportunity. They've lost ability to be able to see and experience what they could have and they should have as the result of that rejection. Spiritually, for a time period, the Bible teaches as God's discipline is upon them for their choices, they're somewhat, if you're a parent, you grasp this, they're somewhat in time out. You know, when your child misbehaves sometimes, if you don't imply to them the you know, rod of correction to the seat of learning, if you're a little softer, you may say, you know what? You need to go in time out. 
So you say you go sit over there and you can't play. And do it. So you need to sit over there and, and you're going to have to just sit there for a little bit. And I want you to sit there and think through what happened and maybe learn the lesson. And, and so you, you need to just sit in timeout for a little bit. And then but what happened? After you're done in timeout, you can come back and you can rejoin and re-engage in what you're doing. It's, it's not cast out. It's not, you don't throw them out, I hope anyway, you know, at least till they get 20 or something, you know, they go pay your bills and throw them out then. But you don't throw them out, but you put them in timeout. But timeout means you can come back and then re-engage. And God is somewhat judicially with Israel, the Jews, kind of put them in timeout spiritually and cause them to be somewhat judicially blinded so they don't see. Look what Paul goes on to say in verses 8 through 10. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back Always. So he describes here using scripture again to reinforce his biblical understanding and theology from the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy 29 and statements from Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69 to show how the Jews have entered into a state of somewhat spiritual blindness, judicially, how God has brought that blindness upon their eyes. They've lost their perception that God has given to them a spirit of stupor where their eyes, they cannot see. Their ears are somewhat dull of hearing. They're unable to hear clearly in the way they once could or the way that they should have. And he even describes there in verse 9 and 10 how the table, which I think is a reference to the feasts and the sacrifices, all the religious observances God had given to the Jews, think about them, that those very religious observances have somewhat become a snare to them. And this is absolutely true. God gave the Jews many spiritual observances and activities uh, to help them understand spiritual things. The feasts and the sacrifices and all the observances of Judaism, those were they not originally intended to be a way to help them connect with God, right? Through the feasts, through the observances, through the... That was a way to help them connect with God and more, it was a way to prepare them to see Jesus, but unfortunately, those things that were intended to help them spiritually have now distorted their focus altogether. And now, though they still cling to and keep, as they have historically, religious observances, they don't see the spiritual reality behind the religious observance that it was once intended for. Hey, does that sound familiar? Have you ever yourself participated in religious observances which were originally intended to help you connect with God? They were first instituted as a way to help you to have fellowship with God. But now the religious observance is just a routine and it's lost all its reality spiritually. And people go through the motions still and they go through the religious observances, but it's just mundane, routine, it's lifeless, and it actually is hindering them more spiritually because they're clinging to the religious observance and all the while they're blinded themselves to the reality spiritually of what it means to have a genuine relationship and fellowship with God. And we all have to be careful of that same thing in all of our lives. Paul goes on, verse 11, to say, I say then... Have they, the Jewish people, the Israelites, who he was, have they stumbled that they should fall? Paul says again, certainly not. So he asked the question, 
Has Israel stumbled in such a way that they should fall away permanently? Have they fallen to such a degree that they will not recover? In fact, that they cannot recover, Paul's asking again rhetorically. I think the illustration he's putting in our minds here, have they fallen in such a way that they, or excuse me, stumbled in such a way that they should fall? The, the implication there is, you can walk or be running and you can stumble and lose your balance, but yet after you stumble, regain your balance before you fall on your face and really hurt yourself. You can stumble and yet though you stumble, regain your balance without suffering a severe fall or maybe even a life-threatening fall falling over the edge of a cliff. Or you can also stumble and stumble in such a way that you fall and let's say you're paralyzed forever. Or you can stumble and fall over a cliff and to the end of your life perish and be destroyed. So Paul's asking that question now as an illustration to say, so how does that play out spiritually for Israel? Have, yes, they've stumbled. We know they've stumbled. They, they, they missed Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. But Paul's saying, have they stumbled spiritually in such a way that they've fallen so severely that they've fallen away altogether? That they have fallen to their own destruction spiritually, banished forever by God, set aside as a people nationally. Paul's answer again, verse 11, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Israel is a nation. They stumbled spiritually, but they have not fallen in a way where they've ruined things for themselves permanently. Paul goes on, verse 11, say, but through their fall, what's happened is to provoke them to jealousy salvation has now come to the Gentiles. So Paul begins to develop this point, how the rejection of Jesus by Israel still, look what he's saying, still led to the plans of God to offer the gospel to the Gentile nations, which is what God always wanted to do anyway. Even their failure, this is amazing, even their failure contributed to what God was doing in his overall plan and purposes. Somehow God even used their mistakes and their, their wrongdoings. Israel's rejection, giving up God's invitation of salvation, all that did was make a platform to prompt that opportunity of salvation to then be extended to Gentile nations to the rest of the world at this time because when they refused and forsook opportunity, what did God do? He just passed on the opportunity to someone else. It didn't ruin God's plan. God just said, hey, you, you passed the opportunity in your mistakes, so... I'm not limited still. I'm just going to extend this opportunity to someone else. And now you and I, Gentile people, the other nations, have an opportunity to know and accept Jesus' salvation. You know, Jesus illustrates this, if you're a note taker, in that parable of the Great Supper in Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. If you read that, it really illustrates what Paul's talking about. But notice Paul says, verse 11 here at the latter half, another plan God had in saving Gentile people, you and I, all other nations, and that is, he says, was to provoke the Jews to jealousy. The idea is, as Gentile people would begin to accept Jesus Christ and begin to know the word of God and have fellowship with Jehovah God, God's heart in that was that the Jewish people who could have experienced that themselves would begin to look at the Gentile people and say, hey, wait a minute. What are you doing worshiping our God? You know our Bible better than we do. We wrote the thing. How do you know our Bible so well? That, that's our book. We wrote that. And you seem to have peace and love and joy and grace and this relationship with, with our God. 
Hey, wait a minute, that, that belongs to us. That was ours first. And that, just like as I said before, like if, let's say you have two tickets to go to the Super Bowl and you have three sons, so you think, you know, hey, I should offer my oldest son first. It's the first chance. So you say to your elder son, hey, you want to go to the Super Bowl? Nah, I'm too busy, Dad. Just, okay, that's great. So then you turn and you ask his younger brother, hey, your brother don't want to go to the Super Bowl. You want to come to the Super Bowl? Yeah, I'll come. Now all of a sudden, the older brother, wait a minute. Why are you taking him to the Super Bowl? I should, hey. What happens? You're provoked to jealousy. And see, God's saying that as Gentile people, our salvation, listen, our salvation should cause the Jewish people to be jealous for what we have. It should provoke them to be jealous for what we're experiencing. It shouldn't just provoke them. If our salvation provokes people and just provokes people, something's wrong. But it should provoke people to be jealous to say, wow, I wish I had what you had. There's something in your life that I'm missing that you have. And our salvation should provoke people to want what we have, to experience what we have, and especially as Gentile Christians among Jewish people in our midst. Verse 12, he says, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So again, we see how their failure being used by God in a helpful way since Israel's rejection, Paul says, verse 12, actually enriched the world and Gentile peoples because we now experience salvation. He says, then if that's the case, if their failure enriched us, he says, how much more is there going to be a blessing when the restoration of Israel ultimately happens and when God draws them back and he restores Israel in the last days, how much better are we going to be enriched if we're being enriched out of the failure that happened in their midst as a people? See, the Bible teaches when Jesus returns, he's going to set up his throne. Guess where? Not in Washington, D.C. In Jerusalem. Last time I checked, that was in Israel. And when Jesus restores his work on this earth in the fullest sense, once again, the Bible teaches God is going to work powerfully among the Jewish people. And there is going to be an incredible move of God's Spirit of healing and restoration and renewal as God's Spirit is poured out upon the Jews once again. And as God draws them into an awareness, opening their eyes of who Jesus is, drawing them back into right relationship with him, and that's going to be used by God to bring even greater enrichment and blessing to the people of other nations. Listen to what Zechariah 8 says regarding this. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, regarding the last days, that the times of the kingdom, listen, in those days ten men from every language of nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Look, if their failure brought us salvation, the Bible's saying, what's the restoration going to bring to us? He says, In those days, incredible things will be happening. Paul says, verse 13, For I speak to you, Gentiles. He's talking to us now as Gentile Christians. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify, he says, give my best effort unto my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy, he says again repetitiously, those who are my flesh, the Jews, and save some of them. So Paul says, I endeavor to do my ministry well to the Gentiles that God might use it, he says, to hopefully see some Jews be saved in the process as well. Verse 15, for if they're being cast away, 
And the idea there, again, is kind of set aside for a time, not put away permanently. If that, he says, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance then be in the last days but life from the dead? So Paul's point, if Israel being set aside and put in time out actually served to not ruin God's plans but contribute somehow to his purposes and resulted in reconciling of the world unto God as a whole, he says, verse 15 then, Therefore, he says, if that's the case, then what will their acceptance, their reuniting with God be but life from the dead? The idea is if God worked despite their failure, he's saying, what's going to happen when they come back into obedience and right relationship with God spiritually? What's that going to produce? I think it's interesting that God's restoration of Israel nationally, look at it there in our verse, is pictured like a miraculous raising of the dead back to life. I think that's an interesting illustration. And can I just say, in one sense, that's already happened historically regarding the Jewish people and their land and their national identity, just as God prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago. God's already been raising them back from the dead. Listen, it's a sociological miracle that the Jews exist and Israel is a nation. No other people in human history have gone hundreds and hundreds, 2,000 years without a homeland and retained their national identity and then regathered at their national identity and regained their homeland. That's a miracle. It's a miracle of God and His grace, and it's because God said it would happen. It's a validation that the Bible is true. It's an indication that God has brought back from the dead a people who everyone thought they were dead, but yet in God's perspective, He was able to revive them. And as the Bible says, that nation was born in a day. In May 1948, God miraculously rebirthed, brought back from the dead, if you would, the nation of Israel, put them back in their land as the Bible says they need to be to contribute to God's overall purposes historically. And God prophesied that for a time they would be like a cup of trembling to all nations. And the idea is that the surrounding nations around Israel would be intoxicated with their destruction. And look what's going on right now. Now, not only has God done that historically, but there's coming a time when there's going to be a restoration and a resurrection from the dead, if you would, of Israel spiritually as they come back to life. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12. It says this, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. One who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day God says that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. Be good for political people to know, right? And God says, here's the key, I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, God says, whom they have pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So notice, God says there's coming a time when his spirit will be poured out and the Jewish people will look upon him who they have pierced. When did they pierce somebody? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it says they will mourn like one mourns for the loss of the only son. The idea is they will be stricken with repentant, grief-stricken, humbled heart to say, oh my gosh, we crucified our Messiah. 
We missed him. And they will be in penitent, broken humility and they will turn to Jesus Christ in droves as the Spirit of God in many senses is being poured out and there will be a spiritual revival, a spiritual renewal among the nation of Israel. Now listen, for us this morning, that reminds me something. God's into spiritual renewal. God's into spiritual revival. God's into restoration. In fact, sometimes it's even scheduled on his calendar. It's on his calendar scheduled that a revival is on the horizon and yet sometimes it's got to get really dark first. It's almost got to look like it's dead. It's almost got to look like it's absolutely impossible and lifeless, but that's the condition, the setting, when then God can breathe the breath of his spirit and resurrect from the dead in a renewal and a revival, whether it be a nation or a church or even an individual person who needs spiritual revival. God gives life to the dead. God restores after failure. And we should seek that. We should believe that God is a God who does that. The psalmist says in Psalm 85, Restore us, O God of our salvation. Cause your anger to cease. Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So again, this is something that God does. He's going to do with Israel, and he's a God who shows no partiality. And I think we should say, God, you're in the revival. You're in the renewal, and God, we need you to breathe fresh life into us as a people, as a church, as a nation. God will be willing if we seek him for it. I believe at times he brings it is a part of his plans and purposes. Verse 16, Paul says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So there Paul's using an illustration they'd be familiar with to emphasize how if the source is healthy or wholesome, then everything that comes from it will be also. If the piece you draw out of uh, a piece of dough is wholesome, then it indicates the whole lump was wholesome. If the root of a tree is healthy, then the branches that come from that tree will be healthy as well. Paul says, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, talking about Gentiles, were then grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branch. But if you do boast, Paul says, remember that you don't support the root, that's Israel, but the root supports you. Verse 19, you will say then, hey, well, branches were broke off that I may be grafted into them. Well said, because of unbelief, Paul says, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, he warns us as Gentile Christians, but fear, be reverent. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Israelites, he may not spare you either, Paul says. So here Paul is trying to challenge us as Gentile Christians toward humility toward the Jews, the point he's making is that the make or break issue of standing or falling spiritually is a simple issue of faith or unbelief. Do you see what he says, verse 20 there? Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand for one reason, by faith and God's grace. The reason the Jews lost their opportunity was due to unbelief. The only reason Gentiles stand where they do is because of faith alone and the grace of God that has been shown to us. We have to be careful we don't become haughty and begin to think we're somehow superior or higher than others, whether it's superiority in our attitude towards the Jewish people as somehow we're wiser and better than them. 
That we don't do that towards other people ever spiritually, thinking somehow that we're now better or stronger. Look, the reality is, is we have to remain humble and in healthy fear realize that we can always stumble ourselves. We all have potential to stumble, to trip, to fail, to err spiritually. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the Bible encourages us all never to get arrogant or haughty, but to have fear, to keep believing, and to keep our hearts simple before the Lord. Paul says, verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue, he says, in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So, Again, Paul saying as Gentile believers, we should consider, look what he says, all aspects of God's character and nature in order to keep a balanced perspective in our own spiritual life. God can be severe, Paul says, and he was on the Jewish people because of their strong unbelief and rejection. But he says God also can be a God who's very good and abundantly kind to those who don't deserve such, of which we Gentiles are. And so Paul says, as a result, let's be careful that we never get arrogant and possibly cut off the goodness of God being shown to us because of our own arrogancy that could contribute to other things. His encouragement instead, verse 22, he says, is better to keep considering the goodness of God. And he also says, verse 22, and then continue in his goodness. Here's what Paul is saying, because I think it's great advice for all of us. We should just humbly continue to consider the goodness of God and continue in his goodness in this sense to realize the only reason anything good is happening in my life is because of the goodness of God. The only reason I'm saved is because of the goodness of God. The only reason any good thing is happening in my life is because I'm experiencing the goodness of God and I don't ever want to do something dumb to cut that off in my arrogancy or my own resistance. Paul says, verse 23, if also they do not continue in unbelief, they, notice, will be grafted in, the Jews, for God is able to graft them in. So again, as long as the Jewish people don't stubbornly persist in unbelief, he says, God will and God is able to graft them back in, to restore them back into the experience of salvation. God's able to restore Israel Verse 24, he concludes, I think, this section saying, For if you were cut out of the wild olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more, Paul says, will these who are natural branches be simply grafted, the idea is back, into their own olive tree? Paul's point, simply this, Gentile Christians should just think this through logically. He says, let me ask you a question. Is it not much easier to graft back in a natural branch into its existing tree that it was once a part of? Much easier to do that than to take a wild branch from another tree and try and graft it into the tree that it was never a part of. Paul's saying same is true spiritually regarding Israel and Gentiles. He's saying, look, it's way easier to restore Israel than it has been to save Gentiles. And God's been saving Gentiles. And if God's been saving Gentiles, he said it's no problem for God to take Jews who were already connected Jehovah God 
and to restore them back to what they were already a part of. It's much easier for God to do that, and yet God is already saving Gentiles, which shows us it is not hard or a problem for God to save and to restore his Jewish people unto himself. I think the main lesson the Spirit of God's driving home in this section to us is this, is that God works despite failure. God still works. I love that little phrase in verse 23. I'm going to leave you with that this morning. Look what he says at the end of verse 23. For God is able to graft them in again. For God is able to graft them in again. That's worthy of meditation. Believe it or not, it does not matter whether it's the Jews nationally and historically and what God's going to do in their future, or whether it's any person in any situation. Look, maybe there's been detachment. Maybe there's been separation. Maybe something's been broken off. God says, look, I am able. I'm able to graft it back in. I'm able to bring it back together. I'm able to restore, to renew, to bring back what was destroyed and hurt and detached. And he says, not only do I want to do it, he says, I'm able to do it. I'm able to graft them back into your life again. I'm able to bring your spouse back again. I'm able to bring your child back again. I'm able to bring things back together again because he's a God who works despite all of our failure. True? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray.